So uh, one sunny day about 49 years ago, back in 1973, I was 19 at the time, I drove to the boardwalk at Paradise Beach on the space coast of Florida. It was something I did whenever I got the chance. I lived at the beach in the summer, and uh, this day was no different than a hundred other days. And I went to the beach and, uh, that day, and a lot of times I'd go with a friend and that kind of thing. But when I went by myself, I usually went to meet new people. And by new people, I mean girls. And um, it just so happened on this day, I spotted this blanket of girls that I didn't know. I didn't know a single one of them. So the challenge was how to meet them. And I noticed down in front of this blanket, oh babes, there was this uh, group of kids building a sandcastle. And I thought to myself, well, all girls like guys like kids. And so I decided to go down and help the kids build the sandcastle. I figured I would position myself just right facing the blanket so I could watch the girls. And when they got up from the blanket to go down into the water to cool off, then I could kind of just pick them off until I convinced one of them to go out with me because, you know, they were all really pretty. Well, it worked like a charm. I mean, this gorgeous gal gets up, she heads down to the water, she has this incredible long blonde hair and long tan legs, and when she got close enough, you know, I'm down here and I, I'm raising up watching her, brushing my knees, uh, sand off my knees, and, and I stood up and I said, hi. And she says, hi, great castle. And I'm like, great hair, you know. So I, I follow her down into the water and then, you know, back to the blanket. And I meet all of her friends. And we talked the rest of the afternoon. And then she agreed uh, to let me come over to her house that evening. And after that, we started dating. Now, I promise you, I did not get up that morning asking God to help me find my future wife. I didn't have a vision or a dream that I would meet this beautiful blonde woman at the beach. I just went to the beach that day, just like a hundred other days, not expecting anything special to happen, but it just so happened that day I met the woman who four years later would become my wife. Just an ordinary day, an everyday kind of day, no revelation, no prophetic utterances, no vision, no dream, no angelic visitation. I, well, I guess there was one miracle that day, and that was the miracle that she agreed to go out with me. But, uh, you know, most of our days as Christ followers are like that. Much of our lives just so happen to us. And the events and circumstances of our lives, they, they happen with no fanfare, no special word from the Lord. They just happen and if we didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, we would pretty much just write most of it off as coincidences. But the reality of it is, even though we believe in the sovereignty of God, when these things are actually happen happening to us, we typically don't give much thought to how or why God might be working in everyday, ordinary things. Now, to be sure, of course, yes, there are times when God... Uh, gives us a heads up about what's coming. And there are times when he makes it really clear what he wants us to do next. And there's plenty of examples of those kinds of things in Scripture. However, those times are not as common as some people want you to believe. In the Bible, there are literally generations after generations of people who live their lives, raise their family, work hard, 
love God and they never received any kind of special relation, a revelation from God. And that's true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And here's my point. Most of the time, we cannot know God's will for our futures. Most of the time, we cannot know God's will for our future. Now, oh, we spend a lot of time trying to figure it out, and we spend a lot of time fretting uh, over questions like, is this God's will for me? Is that God's will for me? Should I stay or should I go? Especially when it comes to questions about location and vocation. But the fact is, sometimes we just don't know, and God doesn't always make it clear in the moment. Now, the flip side of this uh, same coin is most often we only... We only know God's will in hindsight. Most often, we only know God's will in hindsight. Now, listen carefully, because I'm going to blow a lot of categories that you have always believed in. Circumstances are important because circumstances provide a context for life's most important decisions. All decision-making, circumstances are important. But to decide, well, if this happens or that happens, then this must be God's will, that, that's like Gideon putting out a fleece, which was not an act of faith, and we saw that in our study of the book of, dangerous, uh, in, in book of Judges, and I would say that's dangerous, and, and if you think that's too strong, I would at least say it, it's unwise to decide God's will based on how you interpret a particular circumstance. And the same is true for inner peace. I hear it all the time. Well, I just don't have a peace about that. Well, I have a peace about that. As in crazy stuff, like I have a peace about leaving my wife. Sorry, sorry, that peace is not in line with what God has revealed in his word about loving your wife the way Christ loved the church. And if you've got a peace about doing something opposite of what God tells you in his word, then God's not in that peace. So, so peace is not a reliable indicator to decide God's will either. I mean, listen, I never had a peace about coming here to this church 25 years ago. But I saw how God, because I really liked where I was. I wasn't looking to leave. But I saw how God was working over the months and months of discussion with the pulpit committee, and I came to see that God wanted me to leave a place I really loved and I was really comfortable in and, and move from that place to a, a more difficult place. And those early years were difficult, I'm here to tell you. But God wanted that for my life. Most often, we only know God's will in hindsight. That was true in Mary and Karen, that was true in coming here. But at the time, as one day merged into the next, I had no exact, no idea what the future would hold uh, for me and how it would play itself out. I just loved one day at a time trying to live out what I knew to be God's will for that day. Now, this is a little sidebar because I got a whole sermon on this from this same chapter, and I just can't get it in, but I want you to hear this. If you do what you know to be God's will today, you cannot miss his will tomorrow, okay? So you don't have to worry, is this God's will, is that God? Just live his will today, you cannot miss it tomorrow, what you know to be God's will today. Now, I'm saying, even if you, <laughs> if you, even if you think you know God's will, you probably don't. I mean, I ask you, were you ever convinced that God was leading you to do something that didn't work out? You were convinced of it, and then it didn't happen. Well, welcome to the Christian life. 
One more time. I know this is probably throwing your head into a tailspin, but one more time. Most of the time, we cannot know God's will for our future. And most often, we only know God's will in hindsight. And out of all the books of the Bible, nowhere is this more clear than in the book of Ruth. The stories of Naomi and Ruth help us see how God is at work in the everyday lives of ordinary people, people who experienced terrible Job-like tragedies. Naomi and Ruth help us see how God is at work in times when our lives are falling apart, in times when maybe for a long time it seems like God is nowhere to be found, especially if it goes on 10 years, as in their case. But always remember this. When you can't see God at work, it doesn't mean he's not working. It just means you can't see him working. Okay, that's pretty simple, isn't it? When you can't see God working, it doesn't mean he's not working. It just means you can't see him working. Now, last week, Jason did a phenomenal job of launching us into our study in the book of Ruth. And why are we studying Ruth after studying Judges? Because the book of Ruth is set, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. During, so, so during the, the, the dark, difficult, dangerous, decadent, degenerate, evil, wicked, idolatrous days of the judges, during a time when there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, there was this family, this poor, poverty-stricken, tragedy-bombarded, immigrant family, and they were just trying to survive. Uh, and Yeah, trying to survive everything I mentioned about the dark days of the judges. But on top of all that, there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem where they lived. And so the family of Elimelech picked up and went to Moab. And I don't mean Moab, Utah. I mean Moab as in the days, as in the country of, uh, of Israel's most hated enemy at the time. This is like a Jewish family moving into Arab-occupied territory when there's all kinds of wars going on between the two of them. And during the family's 10-year sojourn in Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving his widow Naomi alone with her two sons, Mahon and Kilian, and their Moabite wives, which that was a disappointment, I'm sure, at the beginning, for their sons to marry Moabite women, but who else are they going to marry? Orpah and Ruth, and both of them were infertile. Another tragedy. It's like just tragedy, 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 tragedy. And then Naomi's two sons die. Oh, boy. And now you got three widows living together. And in that day and time, in that patriarchal society, if you were a widow and you had no sons or grandsons, you had absolutely no hope. So Naomi's situation was hopeless. Naomi is the female Job even more so. I mean, Job could remarry and build his family, which he did after all the terrible things that happened to him, but not, not so for Naomi. She was just too old, and her situation was completely hopeless. But then at least she hears that back in the land of Bethlehem now, the famine has ended. It's harvest time back in Bethlehem. And so she returns to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who she tried her best to get to stay in Moab with her own people and her own gods. Like, what kind of counsel is that? But Ruth insisted on staying with her mother-in-law, and Ruth made it clear that Naomi's God would be her God. Now, this is odd to me. Is it odd to you? I mean, think about this. What was so attractive about a God who would allow tragedy after tragedy after tragedy to happen to Naomi and her family? 
this God who offered no hope and no help. And Naomi puts it this way when she returns from Bethlehem. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, uh, which is not true, and I came back empty, which is not true because she's got Ruth at least. But, but it's exactly what Job said. Yahweh had treated him harshly and, and badly. So, so Naomi sees Yahweh as the cause of all her trouble. So I ask you again, what could move what would move Ruth to make this kind of commitment to Naomi and Naomi's God? And honestly, I have no idea. But Ruth made up her mind, your God will be my God and your people will be my people if they would have her. And, uh, and the prospects of that happening were slim to none since she was a Moabite woman. So, but Ruth says, nothing except death is going to keep me from uh, uh, from being with you. Nothing's going to keep me from leaving you. And that's amazing. Now, what's, what's interesting here is that Ruth has embraced what Jesus called the great commandment, which is love God supremely and love others sacrificially. That's exactly what she's giving her life to. Love God supremely, love others sacrificially. And there's a specific name for this kind of love in Hebrew. It's God's kind of love for us, and it's called chesed. Now, it's not just said hesed, and it's not chesed, it's chesed, chesed. All right, say that with me, chesed. All right, now you're speaking Hebrew and you didn't even know it. All right, so chesed is a power word in the Bible. It's the most important word in the book of Ruth. Shows up three times, but the idea of God's chesed and people showing chesed to each other runs through the whole story and drives all the action. In our English Bible, sometimes chesed is translated loving kindness, sometimes uh, steadfast love, loyal love, unfailing love, and Yahweh is the ultimate chesed giver. But it's also the kind of love that we're called to live out and to put on display as Yahweh's people. Hebrew scholar Carolyn Custis James uh, says that chesed is driven by a loyal, selfless, sacrificial love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has a right to expect or ask them to do. It goes way beyond duty, way beyond just ordinary love. It's actually, she says, the kind of love we find most fully expressed in Jesus. She says, chesed is the gospel lived out. So Ruth embraced chesed as God's will for her and her life, and she will live out chesed toward Naomi day by day as she looks into an uncertain, unpredictable, unknowable future. And here's what's so cool. Yahweh's chesed love will reach Naomi through the selfless and relentless commitment of Ruth to fight for her. That's what Ruth is doing in this story. She, she is fighting for Naomi, and what we're going to see is Boaz is going to join Ruth in this effort. And what's about to happen in the fields of Boaz in chapter 2 will give Naomi fresh insights into Yahweh's chesed for her. So take your Bible, paper or digital, find your way to Ruth chapter 2 if you're not already there. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm reading in the New Living Translation, which is a great, great translation, especially if you're living, uh, reading a story in the Bible. 
Chapter 2, verse 1. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. So the narrator's just kind of pulled out of the story he's telling, and he's giving us some information that we need to know as the story is going to unfold. Verse 2. One day, Ruth the Moabite, and he's going to say this over and over again. It's like, are you getting the picture? She's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. He's going to say it over and over. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out, out into the harvest fields to pick up stalks of grain left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. So this is called gleaning, and gleaning was Israel's welfare system, a way for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant to sustain themselves by scavenging leftover stalks of grain in community fields. The Mosaic gleaning law found in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24 required a landowner to leave the corners and edges of his field unharvested so after clearing the field, harvesters were not allowed to go back for the grain they missed, it, missed, but they were, according to Deuteronomy 24, you are to leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And so how it would work is hired male harvesters cut the grain, and then female harvesters followed to gather the grain into bundles that would then be carried off to the threshing floor. And here's an artist rendering of that. Once the harvesters were finished, then the gleaners could come in and pick up whatever scraps remain. And in the ancient Near Eastern shame-based culture, gleaning was a source of shame. It was a public display of poverty. The modern-day equivalent would be like Ruth asking Naomi, hey, is it okay with you if I just go to some of the trash bins behind McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and, and find, you know, leftover Big Macs or boxes of half-eaten fries? That's, that's what she's saying is, do you mind if I go do that? Of course, the law made provision of it, and Naomi says, whatever you want to do. It's, and the shortness of Naomi's answer is like, she, she, she's like, I just, I'm just here, I'm just back here to die. So, so sure, go, go, to, go right ahead. And Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. Now, this decision to glean in the fields was not just risky, it was very dangerous. Ruth is a Moabite woman, a hated Arab living among Jews. These are the dark, dangerous days of the judges when men did what was right in their own eyes to helpless, unprotected women. And in just a few moments, we'll see that Boaz himself is going to underscore the danger facing Ruth. And at the end of the day, when Ruth returns home unharmed, Naomi's going to tell Ruth to continue gleaning in Boaz's field uh, because uh, in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So it's very dangerous what Ruth is doing. Verse 3, and it just so happens she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, who just so happened to be the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. And while she was there, it just so happened that Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. I added two just so happens, but it follows from the whole flow of the, the narrative. Uh, Boaz arrives, he greets his harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said, and the Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Now, this is interesting uh, because it seems like uh, Boaz is not just wealthy and influential. This greeting causes us to wonder if he might be a godly man as well, which we, would be rare in the days of the judges, verse 5, then Boaz asks his foreman, 
Who's that woman sitting on the beach blanket over there? Oh, that's wrong story, wrong story. Who does she belong to? And the foreman replies, she's a young woman from Moab that came back with Naomi, and she asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters, and she's been hard at work at it ever since, except for a few minutes of rest in the shelter. Now, pay attention to what he's saying. What Ruth asked for is a very bold, audacious request, especially for a Moabite woman. But she's not just asking to glean in the corners and the edges of the field. She's asking if she can follow behind the harvesters who are cutting the grain and the women who are pick up, at picking up the grain and putting it in bundles. She wants to follow them and pick up what they leave behind. Verse 8. And so Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter. Now, that's, what, that's how Naomi addresses Ruth. This is what someone, say, 20 years older, how they would address a, a younger woman. So, so this, we're getting this idea here that Boaz is at least 20 years older than Ruth. Boaz says, stay right here with with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field, right? The women that are gathering it and, and bundling it up. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. So see, he grants her request and then he says, he gives us executive order. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. So we are getting an even better picture of who Boaz really is here. He is an honorable man who follows the Torah, follows the law. He allows gleaners in his field. Wouldn't be a surprise that he would like, I'm not doing that. Get everything you can out of that field. And second, he doesn't want Ruth to simply take scraps of grain home to Naomi. He goes beyond the letter of the law. He lives out the spirit of the law. Letter of the law is let them glean. Spirit of the law is feed them. So, yeah, he is most definitely looking like a godly man, verse 10. But Ruth fell, and Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I, I, I'm just a foreigner. Yeah, I know, he, he said, but I, I know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. If Na Naomi is Job even more so, then Ruth is Abraham even more so. She left her father and her mother and her people in order to care for Naomi. And Boaz, like the others in, the, in Bethlehem, is in awe of what Ruth has done and is doing for Naomi. Boaz says, verse 12, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Now, Boaz is going to become the answer to his own prayer here. But you need to underline this phrase, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, because that's coming back. That expression, that metaphor is coming back in chapter 3, and it's going to help us understand what Ruth does that seems really strange to us that makes commentators turn all kinds of flips. But it's really easy to understand if you tie it right back to here. But that'll make sense when we get there next week. All right. So verse 13. Well, Ruth says, I hope to com continue to please you, sir. Um, you've comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. 
At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. And, and she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. And when Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of grain from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Boaz is not only ensuring Ruth's safety, but even more, he makes sure that she's going to come back day after day and glean among his harvesters. And then he says, as you're, go, as you're harvesting, just pull out some of the stalks and just throw them on the ground and let her pick them up and don't stop her from doing that. So he provides her, and then he provides her with water and food. He serves her a meal of roasted grain, giving her more than she can eat so she can take the leftovers back to Naomi. Now, even though the text right here doesn't use the word, Boaz is showing hesed to Ruth. He is voluntarily going way beyond what he's obligated to do according to the law. Verse 17. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, so, and then when she beat out the grain in the evening, it filled an entire basket. Now, we're talking 30 pounds of winnowed barley. That would be, that, that's like, just think, 30 pounds of oatmeal. Okay, that's a lot of oatmeal. And uh, that would be, and it's at least about, it's about a half month's pay for a male harvester. Verse 18, she carried it back to town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she worked. And she said, I, just, I worked in this field by a guy named, his, his name was, was Boaz. She has no idea what's going on. Whoa, Boaz, may the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. And this brought me to tears when I, was, when I was reading this. He is showing his kindness, his chesed to us as well as your dead husband. Now, that didn't bring me to tears, but the original Hebrew, which you see in your ESV and the New American Standard says this. Um, may, he be may he be blessed who has not withdrawn his chesed to the living and to the dead. Now, the, may he be blessed. The question is, is, he is she talking about Boaz or is she talking about Yahweh? And the answer is yes. Yes, for over 10 years, Naomi has not personally experienced Yahweh's love and care in the way that she expected. But Yahweh has not withdrawn his loving kindness, which is now coming to Naomi and to Ruth and to their dead husbands through the chesed of Boaz. You see in this, Yahweh's chesed is being expressed and experienced through Yahweh's people. But Ruth has no idea what's going on. But this man, Naomi says, is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now, I'm not going to unpack that this week. We'll unpack it next week. But just know that what that means is this is a relative who is bound by law to help Naomi and Ruth in their hopeless situation. Verse 21, then Ruth said, 
Well, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of barley harvest. And then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. Again, Yahweh's Hesed comes home to Naomi through her daughter-in-law and now also through Boaz. It's a dramatic turning point for this female Job. Naomi's hope in Yahweh is reviving, not because she sees a budding romance, but because she senses Yahweh's hesed in the unexpected turn of events. First, of course, in the abundance of barley that's laid before her, but second, she sees Yahweh's hesed expressed in Boaz's willingness to care for both Ruth and her. Now, if you, now, if you ask Naomi, Naomi, is God really in control of your life? She would say, oh, yes, blessed be he. If you ask her, Naomi, does God really love you and care for you and care about the things that you care about? Naomi would say, oh, absolutely, blessed be he. And although Naomi is a zero in the eyes of the culture, and although her life has been reduced to rubble and her future has been destroyed, Yahweh's not finished with Naomi yet. You do realize that this could have been called the book of Naomi, right? I mean, she's there at the beginning of the story. It's about her. She's in the middle of the story. And at the end of the story, spoiler alert, Ruth and Boaz get together, and Ruth... Um, ends up having, uh, uh, gives birth to a baby boy, and all the women in the neighborhood rejoice when Ruth's baby boy is born, but they say a son is born to Naomi. Isn't that interesting? Oh, yeah, this story is as much about Naomi as it is. And going forward from here, Naomi will not be thinking about herself. She's going to be focused on her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and so Naomi becomes a chesed giver, too from this point going forward. So cool. In chapter 3, Act 3, Ruth is going to put this information about Boaz being a family redeemer. Uh, this, this man is a close relative. You know, she's going to put that to good use, and we'll see that next week. So you better come back. All right. I tell you, I absolutely love this story because it shows how God usually works in our lives. No visions, no dreams, no angelic visitations, no prophetic utterances, no miracles. This is just usually how God works. I mean, do you ever feel like uh, nothing out of the ordinary is going to happen to you because your life is just ordinary? I mean, you get up in the morning, you, you go to work, you take your kids to school, you come home, you eat, sleep, get up, repeat. It all starts over again. Pretty much the same thing every single day. Maybe sometimes with a little break on the weekend, but then you just do the whole thing all over again next week. I mean, that's, that's, kind of, that, that's the way most of us live. And it's not uncommon for the average Christian who lives out his or her life in suburbia and who is employed in the marketplace and paying off a mar mortgage. It's not uncommon to feel like that there's not much there for God to work with. 
But one of the, but one very important thing that this story teaches is that that is not true. Because what we see here is that the everydayness of life becomes the place, the context for divine encounters, even though nobody in the story knows it. You see, this story highlights a very simple but yet profound principle, and that is that God is actively involved in the ordinary events of daily lives, even though most often we don't see him at work. But he's there. He's the God of the ordinary. He's the God of every day. He's the God of coincidences. He's the God of, it just so happens. The God we sung about, and two, this morning, providentially is arranging, directing, and guiding all the events of our lives, whether we see them or not. Remember, I, I, I said when we first got started, when we can't see God uh, at work in our lives, it doesn't mean he's not working, it just means we can't see him. And you and I need to believe that. And we need to take that and drive it deep into our souls. And I want to spend a couple of minutes helping you do that. In this story, we see the unseen God at work in several different ways. First of all, when Naomi and Ruth return from Moab, God has already been working. He's already been working to provide a close relative who is going to be the answer to their prayers. They just didn't know it. Think, God had to ensure that Elimelech would have a close relative still living in Bethlehem who would make it through the famine and the moral and spiritual chaos of the days of the judges. This relative would have to remain stable through a time when, according to the book of Judges, the Midianites ravaged the land every year and often on famines were the status quo. And all this time, God was taking care of Boaz to make sure he could take care of Naomi and Ruth. And had that not happened, we'd have a very different story. You say, well, why didn't he just take care of, of Ruth and Naomi and not worry about all this? I don't know. God's God. He can do it the way he wants to. But he did it. That's the point. Second, also, we see the unseen God working as he guides Ruth to the field that belongs to Boaz, but she didn't know it. Remember how the narrator tells the story? You know, like when, uh, when Ruth went out to glean in the field, she, I mean, she could have chosen any, any one or two or three dozen fields, I, I would guess. But it, it says it just so happened that she came to a field that belonged to Boaz. It just so happened. The Hebrew literally says, by chance, she chanced upon the field. <laughs> by chance, she happened, uh, by chance, she chanced upon the field. But, 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 of course, the narrator knows that we know nothing happens by chance to people who come under the wings of Yahweh. Nothing. Like, the, if the narrator was telling this story to a group of people one evening around a campfire, when he got to this part of the story, he would say, and it, and it just so happened that Ruth came to a field belonging to Boaz. Like he would wink. Like he knows that we know that nothing happens by chance. We live in a world where God is in control of all these things. But day by day, week after week, we don't, we don't see it. And we don't always experience it. Most days, we're just doing what comes next. And it's in hindsight that we can see how 
God was working in and through the just-so-happened moments of our lives. And, and, and here, Ruth just so happens to end up in the field belonging to Boaz. And Boaz just so happens to be the man who can do something about Naomi and Ruth's situation. But Ruth doesn't know it. And Boaz doesn't know where it's going. Third, we see the unseen God as God is arranging all these things through his perfect timing. And we see that Ruth uh, happens into Boaz's field, and he happens to arrive while she's still there. I mean, what if he had come earlier, or what if he had come later? Couldn't happen. Know why? Because God is never early or late. His timing is always perfect, even though it makes us wonder if it takes him 10 years to get around to it. I mean, again, it all, it's all seems so ordinary, and it is so ordinary. It's so everyday, not so non-eventful. But God is causing all things to work together for the good of these people who have been called according to his purpose. I don't know of a better Bible illustration of Romans 8.28 than the book of Ruth. Right here, we're seeing it lived out. By the way, this is called the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence teaches us that God has a predetermined plan that he's bringing to pass, and that plan cannot be thwarted or hindered in any way because what God has purposed, he will bring to pass. And you say, well, what about all the bad stuff? Well, that's a good question, and I don't have a completely satisfactory answer to that, but in a way that we don't and can't fully understand God's plan included both good and evil, and yet God was not the responsible cause of the evil that he allowed in the plan. But this eternal plan of his is such that he superintends all the details of life, good and bad, working them all together according to his good purposes, according to his perfect timing, to bring about his highest chesed good for those who trust him. And in this meeting of Ruth and Boaz, God allows his divine providence to peek through so we can see it and be encouraged by it. In this story, we see as God sees, even though Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz don't see it, they have no idea that the ordinary, everyday decisions that they're making fit into some kind of larger plan. Think about it this way. As far as Ruth was concerned, this was just an ordinary day. I mean, she was going out to do what had to be done. She was living out what she had committed herself to do in caring for Naomi. The field that she chose was just one of many options. She wasn't thinking about it much. The only thing that she was concerned about was ending up in a field where it wouldn't be safe for her to be there. And without her knowing it, everything was about to change in a moment's time. As far as Boaz was concerned, this was just an ordinary day. I mean, he showed up for work just like he had every day during the harvest. He showed up, he looked across his fields and inspected how the workers were progressing uh, just as he did every day. He struck up a friendly conversation with his foreman just like he did every day. And this particular day, he just asked a simple question about a young uh, blonde-headed woman that he hadn't seen before. Nothing out of the ordinary Nothing out of the ordinary. I keep getting these stories confused. And, and, and he, had, he had no way of knowing that this was the day that he would see the, for the first time the woman he was going to marry. As far as Naomi was concerned, this was just an ordinary day. It was a depressing day, just like every other day. A day another day without hope. Another day 
in her mind, just sitting and waiting to die. And when she woke up that morning, she couldn't know that that day would end with the first glimmer of hope that she had had in 10 years. But God was providentially, supernaturally working behind the scenes, orchestrating, arranging, directing, leading, and guiding the ordinary events of each person's life, bringing them all toward this moment when their lives intersected with his eternal purposes. But they had no idea. You see, the the ordinary moments and events of your life have a sacredness to them that only time itself will reveal because God orchestrates the ordinary. He orchestrates the ordinary. I, I know, I know, I know we hate the ordinary. We hate the everyday. We hate the routine. I mean, we thirst for what's exciting, something different, something exhilarating. We want to hear God speak in just about every decision we make and everything that happens to us. And we want to see God in unmistakable ways. And we want dreams and visions and prophetic utterances and miracles and spectacular gifts that make us, make us feel good about ourselves and make us feel God in ways that transcend this life. I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. I'm not saying it doesn't happen sometimes. They do happen sometimes. I am saying it's not the norm, not the norm for most of us. I am saying we didn't get this idea that we really only experience God in the extraordinary. We didn't get that from Scripture. Yes, it's in the Scripture. But we didn't get this idea that we, some of us get so consumed with from the Scripture. Where did we get the idea? Well, we got it from our culture. Modern Western culture puts an extremely high value on the unique on the individual, on the special. And we celebrate things that make us different from other people and we minimize things that make us the same as other people. And the worst possible thing in life is the boring routine of the ordinary. But isn't it true that most of our lives are given to tasks that have no end? Like the house is dusted and vacuumed only to be vacuumed and dusted again. I mean, the yard is mowed only to have to be mowed again. Clothes are washed and dried only to be washed and dried again. You make a big sale, but you got to do it again. And next year, if you keep, I mean, if you keep doing it all year, the next year, they just raise your quotas. I mean, you get what I'm saying. It's no wonder we're all hungry for something spiritually exciting. But what if, what if experiencing God is not usually, or not always, or even usually, Exciting and extraordinary. What if, what, if, what, what if our lives are meant to be lived more like what we see in the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz? I mean, maybe we're approaching the Christian life all wrong. Maybe rather than assuming that God uh, happens to, only happens, we only experience God in the extraordinary, super spiritual moments of life, maybe we should rethink the whole thing. So let's do a little rethinking. Uh, let's think about if you tallied up the hours of your average day. So let's say working, nine hours, sleeping, seven hours, eating, two hours, including cook, cooking and cleanup, driving, commuting, I don't know, one hour, showering, shaving, grooming, one hour. For some of you, it's like two, two and a half hours. Uh, errands and chores, one hour, exercising, that varies from each of us, you know, like, I, I am hitting my stand-up goal every day, so 
But that, you know, that just do, I just do that as part of my normal day. But anyway, uh, I mean, you add all that up right there, that's 22 hours. And so all our lists are gonna be slightly different, of course. But on an average day, the everyday routine parts of life add up to at least 20 hours. That's 83% of your day to ordinary routine stuff. And that leaves just four hours a day for everything else, like chatting and soccer games and reading and TV and golf and bunko for some of you. And on top of those extras, preachers like me stand up here and we tell you to devote yourself to prayer and to Bible reading and to ministry and serving and community groups. And somehow all that has to be packed into that 17% of our lives that's not already given uh, to the routine, everyday, mundane, must-do kinds of things. Now, all this was even more true in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz day because they worked from sunup to sundown and it was basically work, eat, sleep, repeat. But God was at work in and through their everyday lives. They just couldn't see it and really they never saw it. They never saw how far reaching God's providence was taking them. As I said, spoiler alert, Ruth and Boaz get together. They have a son named Obed who had a son named Jesse, who had a bunch of sons, I think eight in all, and one of them, the runt of the litter, was a kid named David who became God's chosen king for Israel, the king in whose royal line came Jesus. They never saw any of that. Never saw it. But that was God's eternal plan. They were playing parts in that plan. What do you think Obed's life was like? What do you think Jesse's, I mean, he gets a little mention on the page there. Well, I imagine Obed and Jesse, they just did the same thing. Work, eat, sleep, repeat, love God. Maybe they greeted their workers in the name of Yahweh. Maybe they learned to extend chesed to people they work with and live with, like their father Boaz or their grandfather Boaz. Maybe their greatest contribution was raising kids, some of whom love God and pass their love of God on to the next generation. But we're talking ordinary people. Ordinary lives, extraordinary contributions to the eternal purpose of God. But they never saw it. You want to know how you can see the unseen God? You want to know how you can see God at work in your life when you can't see God at work in your life? We see God when he can't be seen by seeing him in Scripture. We see God when he can't be seen by seeing him in Scripture. When you can't see God's activity in your life, when you're not experiencing him in, in a tangible way in the events and circumstances that come your way, you can see him in Scripture. In stories like this, in stories that show us and convince us that just because we don't see God at work doesn't mean he's not working, right? Right? This is one of the most powerful reasons to read Scripture that I know. Because in the Bible, we get a sneak peek behind the scenes. In the Bible, we see things that the characters in the story don't see. And they're written down for us so that we get this bigger picture of God's active involvement in the lives of his people. We get this bigger picture of God's active involvement in our lives and how he works when we can't see him, and how he's working in our waiting, as the song says. And the bigger picture of seeing the unseen God at work in Scripture is meant to give us hope in the midst of our ordinary lives. 
when hard times come into our lives and it makes no sense to us. By the way, I, I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible reading plan, we have a, the CBR Journal Bible reading plan has a new card. It all starts fresh and new today and you can pick up one of these somewhere. They're around the church somewhere, like in the back. Do we have some in the back over here? Okay, yeah, and we got them out in the commons at Next Steps and Welcome Center. But um, you just, just, it's a chapter a day. And if, when you start reading your Bible, start to look and ask yourself, what am I seeing in Scripture that I don't always see in my life on a day-to-day basis? How do I see God in Scripture where I don't always see him in my life on a day-to-day basis? That's a good way to, to read the Bible. And you're going to see some spectacular things. Of course, it's in there. Because there's lots of people that just live day to day, and they just love, they work, they eat, they sleep, they love God, they share God, share uh, with other people His love for them, just like we see in the Book of Ruth. The big thing, though, is like in Scripture, we see God pouring out His chesed for us, His loyal love, it, it going way beyond what we could ever imagine. Because what we see here, and this again back to chapter 4, but what we see is the 16th great-grandson of Ruth hanging on a Roman cross 1,200 years later to put God's covenant, loyal, chesed, agape love on display in order to draw us to himself. Listen, in the midst of your ordinary everyday life, you may not always see how God is working for your good but he is. He always, always, always works for your good. You can't always see it, but the scripture tells us that it's true. And you need to take that truth and, 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 and put it way down in your soul. Make it the bedrock of your faith. You need to know it, and you need to understand it, and you need to live it, and you need to share it because Scripture teaches it, and your Savior Jesus died and rose from the dead so you could make it your living hope. See God at work in Scripture. See God at work in what your Savior Jesus has done for you, and that will give you the faith and hope you need when you can't see God at work in your circumstances. Father God, thank you for scripture. Thank you for a simple story like this that's packed with so much wisdom and insight. And God, we're a people who actually, we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. We have your very presence living inside us that consistently convinces us that you are with us and for us, and that's something that people in Ruth's day did not have. But even with the Holy Spirit, even with the Word of God written down, we still struggle from time to time. So help us take what we learned from Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Help us to take what we've learned today about how you are always working even when we can't see it, and help us to build our lives on that truth so that we never doubt it when those hard times come. In Jesus' name, amen.